Blog Talk Radio.
Who's out by your man, Azika Way? And welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine uh, brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, May 15th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Later on in this episode, uh, we'll be featuring our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the announcement by the Russian ambassador to the United States saying that Moscow will not back down on this mission in Ukraine. Ethiopia has warned uh, the European Union that it should hold the TPLF rebel group accountable for its threats to resume a military conflict inside the Horn of Africa state. Sudanese uh, Democratic forces are discussing the best methods to achieve the removal of the military regime in Khartoum. And the Central African Republic, uh, the CAR, was ban- has banned a documentary claiming that it would incite violence. In the second hour, we listened to an interview uh, with uh, the Abayomi Azikwe, the host of this program. The interview aired uh, earlier today over the Activist News Network uh, based in New York City, where uh, the Pan-African Newswire editor and Pan-African Journal host discusses the role of NATO and the struggle against imperialism. Finally, we review reports on the involvement of the United States government in efforts to destabilize the ASEAN region in Asia. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude with the orchestra by Bob uh, with the Cebu Aja uh, album. Uh, Let's listen in.
Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. This uh, special edition uh, of our program, uh, we just heard uh, music uh, from Orchestra Baobab from the West African state of Senegal. And uh, right now we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And our lead story, of course, uh, deals with the current military conflict uh, in the Eastern European country of Ukraine. The Russian Federation uh, has asserted uh, to the United States that it wouldn't capitulate in Ukraine. That's according to Russian ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Antonov. Uh, he said that uh, to the Solev Viev live television on Sunday. We say firmly and clearly and are unequivocally confident at least Russian diplomats who work here, uh, there won't ever be any capitulation, the diplomats said. We are confident that all the goals set by the Supreme Commander-in-Chief before our armed forces will be completely attained. Uh, We will never give up. We won't back up. He added, uh, the ambassador noted that the goals and tasks of Russia's special military operation are clearly defined. All that we want is the absence of any threat uh, for the Russian Federation from Ukrainian soil. He noted, the envoy pointed out that the U.S. is being drawn deeper into the conflict with unpredictable consequences. Nevertheless, uh, nowadays the situation is highly dangerous. The U.S. is being drawn deeper into the conflict and the most unpredictable consequences for relations between the two nuclear powers, the diplomat added. In other news, in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, despite all the measures taken to ensure lasting peace, unfettered access to humanitarians, and accountability over human rights abuses, the terrorist uh, TPLF has continued beating war drums for another round, so said the Ethiopian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister Demike Makadin uh, said that the European Union should compel the TPLF to take accountability for its actions and put restraints on its unhelpful and destructive moves to spark another round of conflict. The Mike uh, further urged the EU to expedite its support uh, to the people affected uh, by the conflict and drought in various parts of Ethiopia. He briefed the EU uh, Special Representative for the Horn of Africa about the accelerated unfettered humanitarian access in collaboration with partners such as the World Food Program uh, following the Declaration of the Humanitarian Truce and about the peace-building steps taken by the government, the formation of the National Dialogue Commission that aims at addressing critical issues in the country. The government of Ethiopia has also established a ministerial committee comprising about 100 people from various law enforcement bodies to bring perpetrators of human rights abuses before justice, it was learned. The EU Special Representative for the Horn of Africa, Annette Weber, appreciated government efforts and reaffirmed the EU's commitment to support the confidence-building measures of the Ethiopian government and the humanitarian truce declared to facilitate unfettered access to partners and aid agencies. They also discussed critical matters in the Horn of Africa region, including the state of the African Union-led trilateral negotiations over the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam Project, GERD. In this regard, Demike expressed the commitment of the government of Ethiopia to find amicable solutions for the outstanding issues over the GERD. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. 
the uh, political process initiated by the United Nations mission to Sudan and then adopted uh, by the tripartite mechanism of the United Nations, the African Union, and the Intergovernmental Agency on Development is still oscillating uh, in its first consultative square after several months and many complications, most notably the intervention of the African Union and its envoy, Mohammed el Hassan Ul-Labat, which many in the Sudanese political scene view then as counterproductive. However, the need for a political solution to address the crisis resulting from the October 25th coup d'etat and reverse its course has become more urgent for several reasons. The first is the economy. Uh, The coup d'etat of October 25th, 2021, had a significant impact hitting the Sudanese economy and disrupting the harvest of the fruits of the difficult economic reforms carried out by Hamdok first and second governments. For example, the then ongoing $760 million World Bank projects were suspended immediately after the coup. Uh, Moreover, Sudan was expected to receive a grant of $500 million on budget support by the end of December of 2021 from the World Bank, in addition to another $500 million to support development projects in the areas of energy, food security, and natural resource management. These grants, uh, which were expected uh, to be included in this year's 2022 budget, were suspended due to the coup. Sudan was also expected to receive a $2 billion grant from the International Development Agency in February of uh, this year. This was also frozen uh, due to the uh, coup and was completely lost to Sudan by the end of last April. The $700 million in economic support to Sudan, which was approved by the United States Congress after Sudan was removed from the list of state sponsors of terror, was also frozen. And the wheat grant agreed to uh, be provided annually by the U.S. government which amounted to 350,000 metric tons of wheat, which is worth about 125 million U.S. dollars, currently increased due to the increase in wheat prices globally. And it covers about one-third of Sudan's annual wheat needs. It was also stopped due to the October 25th coup. Sudan's debt forgiveness uh, process uh, vis-a-vis the HIPC initiative that's heavily indebted poor countries, was also stopped uh, due to the October 25th coup. Sudan's debt forgiveness process um, via the HIPC initiative was uh, to the amount of some uh, $70 million, also stopped after the coup due to the failure of, of, to meet the deadline for evaluating the process in February and April, the lack of a clear economic plan after the coup, and the lack of a civil government recognized by the world to deal with. No one expects the world to forgive a country's debt or aid uh, to use its financial resources to buy bullets and tools of repression against the people. The Family Support Program, uh, Tamarit, which provided a considerable reserve of foreign currency to contribute to stabilizing the exchange rate after the liberalization of the currency, as well as providing direct cash support to families, was also suspended. All this stopped after the October 25th coup, but the changes of its return depending on a political solution that restores the path of the democratic transition inside of Sudan. And you can read uh, this analysis uh, in its entirety uh, that was initially published in the Sudan Tribune uh, by logging on to the Pan-African Newswire. Uh, The article is by Khalid Mukhtar Salim. And uh, finally, 
the Central African Republic uh, has banned a documentary portraying student life that was selected for this year's Berlin Now over allegedly, quote, inciting revolt against the authorities, unquote, the culture ministry uh, said on Friday. We Students uh, by young filmmaker Rafiki offers insight into the chaotic lives of a group of economic students at the capital's Bangui University. It was the first Central African film to make it to the prestigious festival in Germany in February and has already been shown 11 times in the capital before the ban. On April the 30th, uh, culture minister Jennifer Sariva Yanser walked out of a screening of the feature-length film in Bangui, and a Jean-France press journalist said, later condemning it as a as containing very compromising images and deploring the fact that it had not been approved by the ministry before being shown abroad. This film is nothing but a report that tends to denigrate Central African students, destroy social cohesion, and incite revolt against the authorities and institutions of the republic, the cultural ministry said in a statement sent to the AFP on Friday. The 24-year-old director and his team did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The Central African Republic has been ravaged by civil war since 2013, though it has dropped in intensively uh, since uh, the last uh, four years. With that story, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. In concluding, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you would like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at the panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, today's Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. I don't want you to be no slave I don't want you to work all day But I want you to be true Keep me making 
is May 15th, 2022, and we have a very special guest on the show today, Abayami Azikiwe. Abayami is an acclaimed author, the editor of the Movements and Progressive Governments in Africa, the Caribbean, and other geopolitical regions. Abayami also serves as a political analyst for various television networks and other press agencies internationally. Uh, thank you so much for coming back on the show today. Um, and welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. Um, you're very welcome, and the, and the pleasure is definitely ours. Um, so today, I wanted to talk to you about the excellent and important article that you wrote in Global Research um, that was published, I believe, April 18, 2022, and it was also published um, in the Black Agenda Report entitled, Our Case Against NATO, Africans in the Struggle Against Imperialism, before we get you know too deep into the article, um, I want my first question is, um, you know, how, how did the conflict in Ukraine um, start from your perspective? Well, it goes back at least until 2014, uh, when there was a uh, coup d'état against the uh, elected government uh, that was in power at that time. Of course, it was engineered by uh, the United States government under the administration of Barack Obama. I mean, that's well documented uh, that they were committed uh, to overturning uh, the Ukrainian government and installing a pro-U.S. and a pro-NATO regime. This happened in 2014. And the tragedy of it was that many people today, when they discuss the situation in Ukraine, totally ignore Perhaps they're not aware or they're deliberately uh, ignoring uh, the fact that uh, the government uh, in 2014 was overthrown at the aegis of the United States. They utilized uh, neo-Nazi uh, organizations, uh, militias uh, to integrate them into the security apparatus in Ukraine and, of course, taking other measures uh, such as outlawing the Russian language, uh, destroying uh, monuments, uh, statues, and any trace of the presence of the Soviet Union, uh, the Red Army, uh, and also uh, uplifting uh, the Nazi uh, history of Ukraine, which is uh, pretty extensive, uh, based upon um, the role uh, that occurred uh, during the role of the Nazis uh, during World War II. So that is the uh, starting point that most people have to examine in order to get an understanding of what's going on now in uh, 2022. Now, of course, uh, we could talk about uh, World War II, the role of the Soviet Union, and actually uh, defeating uh, the Nazi regime uh, through a series of battles uh, from 1941 until 1943 that really broke the back of the uh, Nazi uh, German army. Uh, when they uh, invaded the Soviet Union. Now, we could also talk about the uh, developments that occurred at the conclusion of World War II, uh, where you had spheres of influence in Eastern Europe, uh, which were uh, centered around uh, the role of the Soviet Union, and, of course, in Western Europe, uh, the role of the United States and eventually NATO, which was formed in uh, 1949. And, and how does all this fit into the kind of colonial and imperial history of, of NATO? Well, as I pointed out uh, in the uh, report, 
uh, that most of the countries uh, that formed the North Atlantic Treaty Organization were countries uh, that had an extensive history in African enslavement, in colonization of Africa, and other geopolitical regions around the world. So they already had an agenda uh, for the continuation of colonialism and imperialism. And this is important to understand because after World War II, there was an upsurge in the anti-colonial struggle and also the struggle for socialism. Uh, we saw in uh, Vietnam, in the northern part of Vietnam, the Declaration of Independence by Ho Chi Minh and uh, the Vietnamese uh, Communist Party. Uh, we saw also uh, in 1948 uh, the consolidation of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, uh, headed uh, by the Korean Workers' Party, uh, uh, which, of course, was an amalgamation of various uh, left as well as revolutionary nationalist organizations, uh, an alliance that was led by the then Korean Communist Party. We also saw the triumph of the Chinese Revolution led by the Chinese Communist Party in 1949. There was also an upsurge in anti-colonial struggles, uh, the independence of India in uh, 1947. Uh, we saw uh, the beginning of the anti-colonial struggle in the Gold Coast, which later became Ghana in 1947 and 1948. So there was a general uh, ferment uh, within the uh, colonial semi-colonial world against uh, imperialism and for national independence, and some countries wanted to move towards socialism. So we have to look at uh, these events uh, in relationship to the founding of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in 1949. And in your article, you highlight some of the uh, NATO's colonial history on throughout the African continent. Um, can, you, can you kind of outline some of that for us? Well, I talk about uh, in Algeria, uh, which was a French colony between 1830 all the way up to 1962. Uh, there were U.S. troops that were stationed in Algeria uh, during uh, World War II and what was called Operation Torch. Uh, they were there to support uh, the French forces uh, that were not aligned uh, with Hitler. You had the Vichy uh, government, uh, which was largely installed uh, by Hitler. But then there were those who were opposed to Hitler's uh, uh, domination in France uh, after 1940. Uh, there was also huge battles uh, that were carried out uh, by the British against uh, Italian fascism and German uh, fascism and Nazism uh, between 1940 in 1943. I mean, these battles took place in Egypt, uh, in Libya, and also uh, in Tunisia. Uh, in Algeria, the U.S. Uh, landed in late 1942. Uh, they set up uh, what was known as Operation Torch. And uh, in Libya, uh, they had built uh, an air base, the Willis Air Base, uh, which was eventually taken over by the United States, uh, where they maintained that uh, extensive uh, air base up until 1969 uh, when you had the uh, September Revolution led by Muammar Gaddafi and the Revolutionary uh, Council that came to power in 1969. Uh, but in Algeria, uh, there was already 
uh, various struggles that were taking place uh, by the end of World War II for national independence. On May 8th of 1945, uh, the Algerian masses went out to celebrate both uh, the defeat of Nazi Germany, which they surrendered uh, during that time period, and also to call for the national independence of Algeria, which has been a colony since 1830. And uh, the response of the French colonial authorities was to massacre thousands of Algerians in the capital and various parts of the country. And this was a major blow uh, to the Algerian people. And nine years later, the uh, Front Liberation Nationale, the FLN, or the National Liberation Front, uh, was formed. They embarked upon an armed struggle in 1954, uh, which resulted in perhaps a million people being killed between 1954 and 1962. It was a bloody conflict. It was a very intense conflict, and it brought in other African states, for example, Mali and Morocco as well, uh, that served as rear bases uh, for the FLN uh, during the 1950s and early 1960s. Also, France Fanon, uh, who was born in Martinique in the Caribbean, who had served with the French forces, Allied forces, during World War II, he had trained as a medical doctor and a psychiatrist, and uh, he was stationed to go to Algeria to work on behalf of the French in the aftermath of World War II, and viewing uh, the colonial situation in Algeria, understanding uh, the colonial history of France uh, in the Caribbean, where Martinique is located, he switched sides and joined the FLN and became a spokesperson, a writer, and a diplomat. He was stationed in Accra, Ghana uh, in the late 1950s after the All-African People's Conference that was held in September of 1958. Uh, so the Algerian Revolution brought in international forces uh, who were in solidarity uh, with that struggle. Then in 1962, uh, the French agreed to withdraw uh, from Algeria and the country was declared independent under the FLN and the initial uh, leadership there was consolidated under Ben Bella, uh, who was a renowned uh, liberation fighter who remained in power for about three years, although there was a uh, internal power struggle that removed him and uh, Boumedine, uh, who replaced uh, uh, Ben Bella after 1965, was also an anti-imperialist and, and contributed immensely uh, to the struggle for the liberation of Africa. So uh, Algeria, uh, then and even today, is a major player in the anti-imperialist struggle in Africa. And um, similar to um, Algeria on, on the Gold Coast, what was, what was then referred to as the Gold Coast, Kwame Nkrumah, um, uh, help lead, lead a liberation struggle against the U.S. and NATO. Can, is that accurate? Yes. Uh, it's quite interesting. Um, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, who was born in the uh, western uh, region of Ghana, uh, in the Azima region, in a town called Ankrafol, uh, had uh, been educated in the Gold Coast, largely in missionary schools. He then was able to secure admission into Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, which is a historical uh, 
black college and university. And he went there in 1935. He spent 10 years here in the United States. Uh, he obtained a bachelor's degree and also graduate degrees from Lincoln University as well as the University of Pennsylvania. While he was here, he was not just a student. Uh, he was an organizer within the African Students Association in North America. He was also an activist in the Garvey Movement, the Universal Negro Improvement Association in Philadelphia. Uh, he was an activist in the Council on African Affairs that participated in a conference in 1944 uh, with the CAA. Uh, he had uh, studied uh, the philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey. He had also studied the works of uh, CLR James, who was also from the Caribbean, from Trinidad. Uh, Marcus Garvey uh, was uh, from Jamaica. And, uh, of course, he also uh, studied under uh, W.B. Du Bois, uh, who was an African-American uh, Pan-Africanist and later uh, socialist and communist. Now, uh, Du Bois uh, was influential over Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, but George Padmore, uh, who was originally known as Malcolm Nurse, who was born in Trinidad in 1901, had been a member of the Communist Party in the United States uh, during the late 1920s. Uh, he was also heavily involved in the Communist International, the Comintern, in the early years. And at one point, he was the top uh, African-Caribbean uh, black person, period, uh, within uh, the international uh, communist movement, uh, doing trade union work, anti-imperialist work uh, throughout uh, the United States, Europe, and in other parts of the world. Uh, Pradmore uh, was a heavy influence on Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, so, yes, Nkrumah had all these influences. And then in 1945, he left the United States to go to London to study at the uh, School of uh, Economics, yet he was so involved in anti-colonial work and student organizing uh, that he became um, a very important figure in the Pan-African Congress uh, that was held in Manchester, England in October of 1945. He was also a part of the West African National Secretariat and other organizations uh, operating at that time in London. He stayed there for approximately uh, two years, and then he was summoned to come back to the Gold Coast uh, by the United Gold Coast Convention, uh, which was an anti-colonial organization, but it was not a mass organization. Uh, he was brought back uh, to Ghana as an organizer for the UGCC. Uh, when he got there, his objective was to build a mass movement to move, move towards national independence immediately. Uh, the UGCC, uh, their slogan was independence in the reasonable amount of time. Nkrumah wanted independence now. So there was a clash uh, between Nkrumah and the people he had recruited. He recruited a lot of young people. And they set up what was called the Committee on Youth Organization and mobilized thousands of young people throughout the Gold Coast. And uh, in 1948, he also formed uh, the Evening News, which was a newspaper, because he understood the importance of the press, of newspapers at that time, uh, in the overall struggle uh, for liberation. Of course, there was a split uh, between uh, the Committee on Youth Organization 
uh, headed by Kwame Nkrumah and the UGCC leadership, uh, which occurred uh, in the middle of 1949. And then in June of 1949, uh, Nkrumah formed the Convention People's Party uh, in Accra, Ghana. Uh, and the initial rally had tens of thousands of people who came. And then early 1950, they called for a general strike, uh, which he labeled as positive action, uh, which was successful. He, of course, was arrested by the British colonial authorities. He was locked up for an entire year uh, for treason or sedition. And, of course, uh, the CPP continued to organize. There was already a reformed constitution that was being implemented. The CPP in uh, February of 1951 contested the local government elections in the Gold Coast. They won overwhelmingly. Of course, this prompted the British authorities to release Kwame Nkrumah from prison and uh, invited him to participate in a coalition government um, as leader of government business. This occurred in 1951. So the period between 1951 and 1954, where another election was held, uh, which made Kwame Nkrumah prime minister of the Gold Coast, and then had to mobilize again two years later for another election in 1956, which the CPP also won. And of course, this at this age for them to declare independence on March 6th of 1957. So, yes, uh, in was here in the United States during the Great Depression, during World War II, he understood uh, the intricacies of imperialism, of colonialism, of capitalism. Uh, he understood socialism and communism. And he understood the necessity of mass organizations that would play a vanguard role in the struggle for liberation. Um, it, it seems like your connection might be a little bit shaky. All right. Um, I can hear you well, but um, seeing you is a little bit shaky. Okay. Good. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Uh, keep talking. <laughs> okay. Then. All right. Uh, so no, just, I, I want to make sure it's connected, so I uh, say something. Yeah. So all of these talks, if we look at Algeria, we look at the Gold Coast, uh, you know, we could talk about other countries uh, on the African continent, but they were all uh, subjected to uh, colonial and consequently imperial uh, domination. Yeah, and, and to... Um, and, and the former Portuguese so-called colonies of uh, right. Mo Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, and Cabo Verde, Angola, um, what role did, did NATO play in trying to maintain them, uh, trying to support the Portuguese in maintaining them as, as colonies? Portugal was a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. They were supplied with arms uh, by the United States, and the government there was fascist. Uh, under uh, Salazar, Catano, and the others. And uh, the Azores, uh, which is a series of islands uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, which were controlled uh, by Portugal, the United States made arrangements to utilize that territory uh, as an air uh, base for launching attacks uh, in Vietnam. Actually, it was a staging ground uh, for other military operations. Uh, so, therefore, the United States was culpable in the colonization 
of all the countries that you mentioned. Portugal was perhaps the least developed uh, imperial country in Europe. Uh, so therefore, they kept their colonies up until 1974. Uh, there were several liberation movements that were organized. Uh, we could talk about the Mozambique Liberation Front, LIMO, uh, that were formed uh, and co-founded by Eduardo Malande, who went to school also in the United States at Syracuse University. He was assassinated in 1969, and Samoa Michel uh, took over Polimo at that time. And also you had uh, Angola. There was the popular movement for liberation of Angola, which was the anti-imperialist and progressive liberation movement in Angola. There was also the African Party for the Independence of Jane Cape Verde, PAIGC, uh, that was headed by Amilcar Cabral. And in 1974, uh, due to the economic and political impact of the guerrilla wars that were being waged in Africa against Portuguese colonial rule, some junior military officers in April of 1974 issued a coup against the civilian right-wing government in Lisbon. And uh, one of their uh, major uh, efforts, directives, was to uh, set the stage for the independence of the colonies in Africa. So in uh, 1974, Guinea-Bissau uh, became independent. And in 1975, Mozambique and Angola became independent. In Angola, uh, there were two other uh, movements uh, that were in existence, which were supported by imperialism. Uh, the FNLA, uh, which is headed by Holden Roberto, who was based in the form of Zaire, uh, which was a neo-colony of the United States under Mobutu Sese Seko, there was also the UNITA organization. And uh, they were, that was headed by a man named Jonas Bembe, uh, which had collaborated with the Portuguese as well as the South African uh, Defense Forces. So there was a concerted effort to try to prevent the MPLA that was headed by Dr. Augustino Neto from taking power in Luanda, the capital of Angola, in 1975. Uh, they were closing in on the MPLA bases in the capital. Fortunately, uh, uh, Dr. Nato appealed uh, to uh, the Cubans to provide assistance. He also appealed to other African countries to provide assistance to consolidate the MPLA uh, political control in Angola. And uh, Cuba sent tens of thousands of its own troops waged a tremendous battle alongside the uh, armed forces of the MPLA, SAPLA. And, of course, uh, there was a battle that was waged for several months, and uh, the MPLA was able to uh, consolidate its power in Angola. The Cuban internationalists beat back the South African Defense Forces, which had also intervened on the side of the counter-revolutionary movements headed by Jonas Pazembe and Holden Roberto. Also, the Central Intelligence Agency had operatives in Angola, and, of course, they had mercenaries in Angola as well. However, they were defeated in 1976, yet they continued in their attempt to uh, dominate and overthrow the MPLA government. This went on between 1976 up until 1988. Uh, there were huge battles that were waged during that time period. Perhaps the most well-known was the battles around 
Quito Corner Valley uh, in the southern part of Angola, uh, where the South African defense forces were defeated and broken. And this, of course, created the conditions for the withdrawal of the South African defense forces and also for the independence of Namibia, uh, which was formerly known as Southwest Africa. Uh, Namibia became independent on March 21st of 1990, and um, it has been independent since then. It also set the stage for the release of the political prisoners in South Africa, uh, such as Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, uh, so many others, the return of exiles, and also for the uh, negotiation of a democratic uh, system in the Republic of South Africa, which was realized in April and May of 1994. So all of these struggles have led uh, to uh, the total independence of Southern Africa and the independence of most of the African continent, at least in terms of political independence, with the exception of the Western Sahara, the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, which is still being colonized by the Kingdom of Morocco, and that struggle is still being waged today as we speak. Yes, we um, we did a show on Western Sahara, um, I guess a month ago or so. Um, and speaking of um, kind of more recent NATO interventions and, and imperial meddling, um, in your article you also talk about kind of the past two decades of of NATO's intervention um, in Europe, um, in Asia, and, and and again in in Africa. Speaking of Yugoslavia, Serbia, Afghanistan, and Libya, can can you um, describe what you wrote uh, in the article regarding those those four countries? Yes. Well, in Yugoslavia in 1999, uh, there was an extensive aerial bombardment of the country that lasted over two months. And this, of course, capped off uh, the dismemberment of the Socialist Federation of Yugoslavia into several independent states, such as Croatia, uh, Kosovo, uh, Serbia, uh, Montenegro, and others. And of course, um, this was a disaster because uh, Yugoslavia was the last country in uh, Western Europe or Southern Europe uh, that uh, had uh, taken on a socialist orientation. Uh, the other countries in Eastern Europe were uh, defeated uh, in the late, 19, uh, late, late 1980s. Uh, the German Democratic Republic, uh, Bulgaria, um, others, uh, Romania, uh, all those countries, uh, the socialist government collapsed. And of course, eventually, uh, most of them joined the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which the U.S. said they would not allow to happen after the collapse of the uh, Comic-Con countries in Eastern Europe and Yugoslavia also the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, in 1991. There was already political degeneration in the USSR uh, from the late 1980s all the way to uh, 1991. And then, of course, it was dismembered in 1991, which placed uh, U.S. imperialism, NATO, and its allies in a dominant position on the international scene. After the ascendancy of uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, to the presidency of the Russia and the Russian Federation, uh, he was attempting to
to rebuild uh, Russia as a world power. And uh, the United States does not want that to happen. Uh, they view Russia as a major threat to U.S. hegemony in Europe, as well as in other geopolitical regions of the world. Also, uh, there was the intervention in Afghanistan under the banner of NATO, uh, beginning in 2001, after the uh, 9-11 incident, the bombing of the World Trade Center, uh, the bombing of the Pentagon. Uh, there were thousands upon thousands of U.S. and NATO troops that were sent into Afghanistan, ostensibly to capture Osama bin Laden and to destroy al-Qaeda. However, 10 years later, when Osama bin Laden was killed, NATO troops and U.S. troops remained in Afghanistan for another decade. They just pulled out uh, last uh, late August of uh, 2021. Afghanistan has been destroyed as a country. And it just didn't start in 2001. It goes all the way back to the late 1970s when there was a government with a socialist orientation in the People's Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. Uh, the United States funded uh, rebel organizations uh, to attempt to overthrow the government in uh, Kabul. And eventually the uh, Soviet troops during the period of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the other socialist countries in Eastern Europe, Soviets withdrew their military forces from Afghanistan. However, fighting continued for a number of years. And then, of course, uh, with the Taliban uh, coming to power uh, and, of course, the U.S. bombing and intervention in Afghanistan uh, and the replacement of the Taliban government by a puppet pro-U.S. government, uh, this led to another two decades of military conflict and economic exploitation. Uh, so when the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan uh, last year, uh, the country was left with no money, uh, very little food. Uh, there was a tremendous problem with dislocation, and uh, that continues until today. The U.S. still has not recognized uh, the Taliban government in Afghanistan. And just recently, several months ago, uh, President Joe Biden uh, took $3.5 million of funds uh, belonging to the Afghan government uh, that were housed here in the United States, took those funds ostensibly to turn it over uh, to uh, people who he claimed were victims of terrorism uh, leveled uh, by al-Qaeda, uh, which is no evidence uh, that uh, the Taliban government was responsible uh, for those crimes. So that's another country uh, that was destroyed. We can also talk about Libya in North Africa, which was the most prosperous country on the African continent uh, prior to February of 2011. Uh, it owed virtually no money to the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. It had at least $170 billion in uh, a sovereign fund uh, that was uh, housed in various uh, financial institutions around the world. Those funds were seized uh, during the course of the counter-revolutionary war against the Jamahariya uh, beginning in February and March of uh, 2011. And also continuing until October of 2011, killing uh, the then head of state, Muammar Gaddafi, killing anywhere between 50 and 100,000 uh, Libyans and other foreign nationals who lived inside the country, 
taking all of their natural resources and leaving the country virtually broken. And over the last 10 years, in fact, it is 11 years right now, uh, they have not been able to establish a stable, sovereign government in Libya uh, over, over the last uh, decade or more. Uh, so this goes to show the impact of NATO uh, and its interventions in Africa and other geopolitical regions around the world. Yes, and in your article, you, you highlight, um, you know, how these occupations, uh, particularly in Afghanistan, Iraq, Haiti, Syria, Yemen, Libya, and other countries are at the root of the dis dislocation of tens of millions of people. Um, and you also noted that this is the largest number of refugees and internally displaced people since the conclusion of World War II. Um, and that, you know, the U.S. and NATO are really at the heart of, of this, this not, not only the millions of people that have died as a result of these conflicts, but also ongoing this uh, dislocation, displacement, and migrant crisis that, um, that is facing the U.S. and, and Europe. Yes. Uh, and uh, these figures come from the United Nations, a refugee agency, uh, since uh, the war in Libya and also the war in Syria. Uh, the number of in internally displaced persons and refugees have accelerated. Every week uh, we hear about migrant workers, refugees attempting to flee Libya and other countries in North Africa who are dying in the Mediterranean Sea. There are being human trafficked. And uh, many of them are often picked up uh, by the European Union Coast Guard forces. Some, uh, due to the uh, poor condition of the vessels they're being transported in, uh, die, drown in the Mediterranean uh, Sea. Even after they get to uh, Southern Europe and Central Europe, many of them are still confined uh, to refugee camps. And they become a political uh, hot, hot potato, in, in a sense. Uh, that um, the right-wing forces in various countries in Europe are running on anti-immigrant and anti-foreigner platforms. Uh, we saw just recently in France uh, the contest between Marie Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron. Macron, of course, being an advocate of neoliberalism, and uh, Le Pen, of course, being a right-wing uh, neo-fascist. Uh, we see the same situation in Hungary uh, and also in Britain. Uh, the advent of the Brexit uh, vote uh, in 2016 and the consolidation of the hegemony of the Conservative Party in the UK is all related uh, to the issues surrounding immigration and particularly immigration uh, from countries in Africa and Asia. Yeah, we could probably spend an entire episode on the hypocrisy and racism of of, of this of this crisis, in the sense that you know that many European nations and the U.S. are welcoming Ukrainian uh, so-called refugees with open arms. However, uh, the, the migrants coming from Africa, from the Middle East, um, the, the the migrants coming from Haiti uh, into the into the U.S. from 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 Cameroon. Um, and from Latin America are being treated um, quite brutally, quite violently at, at, from the images we've seen at the border, um, of, of particularly the Haitians. Uh, so we could probably spend a, a whole episode 
on that. And, and speaking of past episodes and, and something that's along this topic is that uh, when you were last on the show, I believe five or six months ago, we discussed uh, what's, what many are now calling the, the, the cool contagion um, throughout Africa and how U.S., France, and, um, and NATO have been involved in meddling in various coups throughout Africa. Um, but one of the questions I wanted to ask you that is somewhat along those lines, or, or what are some of the similarities that you see between NATO and uh, U.S. African Command, also, also referred to as AFRICOM? Well, of course, the United States is the leader of NATO, and there's also been direct uh, intervention by the North Atlantic Treaty Organization on the African continent as well in terms of joint military maneuvers, uh, the supply of weapons. But a lot of that is being challenged right now, interestingly enough, by the military regimes uh, that have overthrown civilian governments. For example, in Mali, uh, they have ordered uh, not only uh, French military forces to leave, but also diplomatic personnel as well. Uh, so these contradictions are coming uh, to the fore. There's a tremendous amount of anti-French sentiment uh, in West Africa. Uh, they have invited in the Wagner Group, uh, which is a uh, Russian military services corporation to assist uh, in their, their uh, military uh, conflict with the jihadist uh, groups, many of whom uh, have their origins uh, in U.S foreign policy. If we talk about Afghanistan, we could look and see uh, what happened in Syria, as well as Iraq and Yemen as well. A lot of the groups that even the U.S. State Department categorizes as terrorists have received U.S. military and diplomatic support when it is in the interest of U.S. imperialism to do so. Uh, we saw that in Libya, we saw it in Syria, and uh, we're seeing it in Yemen as well. Uh, so these are major issues that have to be addressed by the African Union and all of the uh, African governments now in existence on the continent, because if it is not addressed, uh, it only provides a rationale for further U.S. military intervention in Africa. The notion that the security situation in Africa is such that the African states themselves cannot address these security challenges. Since they cannot address these security challenges, then, of course, they will have to ask the United States and France and other NATO countries to come in and provide training and provide weapons in order to fight off uh, the insurgents uh, who brand themselves as Islamist uh, organizations. Yeah, and if, and if the money is not coming directly from the U.S., the money and arms are not coming directly from the U.S. to the, the so-called jihadist militant groups, um, there, it's coming from Saudi Arabia, um, who is the U.S.'s, you know, number one ally in in, in that region, um, and the U.S. continues to insulate, um, despite all of its ties to extremist terrorism. Um, but shifting gears slightly, I wanted to ask you about um, Biden uh, recently requested from Congress an additional 33 billion dollars for the conflict in Ukraine. And not only did Congress approve the, the, his request, but they, they added another $7 million for a total of, of $40 billion. Um, what is your analysis of, of Biden's request for $33 billion and then Congress upping the ante to $40 billion? Well, Biden, if you look at his history, he supported all of these U.S. interventions in these various geopolitical regions. 
Uh, so it's not surprising uh, that he would be looking uh, for a military conflict to rally uh, military forces as well as uh, political forces of all different uh, persuasions uh, behind his military program. Now, whether that's going to work or not remains to be seen in regard to the uh, electorate in the United States, because this is a midterm election year, and uh, his policy domestically and foreign policy are going to be challenged uh, later on this year. But it's not surprising uh, that Biden uh, would request $33 billion, and it's not surprising that the U.S. Congress, under its current composition, would add another $7 billion to that $33 billion. So we have $40 billion going uh, to continue the war in Ukraine, a war uh, that uh, was largely instigated through the United States and NATO, uh, through the expansion of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, it's even going to be worse right now because they're encouraging countries like Finland and Sweden uh, to abandon uh, their purported neutrality, although there has been military involvement, particularly by uh, Finland uh, with NATO, uh, to, the, to abandon uh, their neutral neutrality in terms of uh, military affairs and to join uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, the Russian leadership has said this is a mistake, uh, yet uh, they're going to continue to do this. So it's a very dangerous situation that exists right now uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, both these countries, we're talking about the United States and the Russian Federation, are nuclear powers. And the Russians uh, just tested a new uh, nuclear weapon system uh, several weeks ago uh, in late April. And, of course, they have put the country on alert, nuclear alert. And Biden... Uh, is attempting to score some type of victory against the Russian Federation in Ukraine. And, of course, the Russian Federation and its military apparatus is determined that that will not happen. Uh, so we could be looking at a protracted military struggle in Ukraine over the future of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And what what does... $40 billion for Ukraine mean in terms of the U.S. really advocating and supporting peace um, in, in the conflict? Well, they're not advocating peace. They're not supporting peace. They have undermined all of the negotiations that took place uh, in Belarus, uh, in Turkey, uh, the U.S. by pressurizing uh, the Zelensky government in Kiev uh, has undermined and sabotaged any potential peace agreement uh, between the Russian Federation and the Ukrainian government. Uh, this conflict could have been ended weeks ago. Uh, in fact, it never should have uh, started. If it had not been for the United States and its constant threats, the uh, consistent imposition of unprecedented sanctions against Russia, calling for a total blockade of Russia, uh, prohibiting countries from uh, trading with Russia and uh, for preventing them from trading with Russia, and at the same time uh, preventing uh, these countries uh, from having any diplomatic or economic relations uh, with the Russian Federation. And that's, of course, been proven almost impossible at this stage. Because you have countries like Germany, uh, for example, that is reliant upon Russia for at least 50% of its natural gas resources. There are other countries in Europe 
that are dependent upon Russia for both natural gas as well as petroleum. Also, agricultural products. Um, Russia and Ukraine are large producers of maize and other agricultural products, uh, which are essential uh, to the diet of people around the world. There's also a problem uh, with uh, the inputs, agricultural inputs, such as fertilizer and machinery, which is also produced and distributed uh, by the Russian Federation. So even a country like Germany, uh, which is closely allied with NATO, uh, which has, of course, been encouraged to remilitarize for the first time uh, since the conclusion of World War II, cannot at this stage, and they've admitted they cannot do this, break total economic and trade ties uh, with the Russian Federation. So the U.S. still has a problem. Uh, the Russian government is demanding that all purchases of oil and natural gas be done in rubles, the national currency of the Russian Federation, in an effort to strengthen the ruble, uh, which has been under attack uh, over the last few months uh, by the United States and the NATO countries. Yes, and it, it seems to me that it, it, the U.S. is just fast-forwarding, and I think Jenny Yellen admitted this a month ago or so, that the, essentially the U.S., with the sanction, uh, um, the, the various sanctions they have on, on Russia, are simply fast-forwarding the de-dollars, uh, fast-forwarding the process of de-dollarization. Um, I don't know if, if what your assessment of that is. Yes, even though the dollar uh, has uh, gained value over the last few weeks, even in relationship to the euro, uh, but this could make it more difficult uh, for people to purchase uh, U.S. goods. Uh, so the inflation rate in the United States is also triggering uh, inflation internationally. Uh, we know here in this country it's around 8.5%, uh, but that actually hides uh, the truth of what is really going on. The escalating prices for transportation, for automobiles, uh, for fuel, uh, for food, and for housing. Uh, it's enormous. And uh, there's no assistance from the federal government. Last week, uh, well, week before last, the uh, Federal Reserve Bank Chairman Powell raised interest rates uh, by half a percentage point. The stock market went up on the first day of that announcement, but every every day since then, the stock market has been in decline, uh, precipitous decline. Uh, so these measures that the Biden administration and the Federal Reserve are taking uh, are doing nothing to curb the inflationary spiral that we see uh, right now in the United States. And this is having an impact on the international community uh, as a whole. And this is compounding the already uh, high prices as a result of supply chain shortages that were largely a product of the uh, fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the massive job losses, the uh, massive uh, hours lost at work, uh, shortages of key uh, parts and products, uh, which has brought about the escalation of prices in various sectors of, of the U.S. economy and the world economy. So the Biden administration really has no plan whatsoever, no clear-cut strategy for first curbing inflation and at the same time uh, trying to prevent a recession in the United States and throughout the entire uh, capitalist world. Uh, they, they need to be clear when they talk about slowing down the U.S. economy. What does that actually mean? 
for U.S. workers, for U.S. Uh, impoverished people? Does it mean uh, that people will lose their jobs? Uh, does it mean that more people will be forced uh, into poverty? Exactly uh, what does uh, that mean? And they're not saying exactly what it means. But what we're saying is that uh, there appears to be an effort to address the inflationary spiral, but the measures that are being taken by the Federal Reserve and by the Biden administration have done absolutely nothing. Uh, Biden talked about releasing millions of barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. He talked about this uh, about two months ago, uh, yet uh, oil prices are continuing to rise. Uh, food prices are continuing to rise. So there's really no uh, rational way out of this as far as the uh, Biden administration, as far as the capitalist system is concerned. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm going to uh, date myself a little bit, but, it, you know, with the Tupac quote, he's, he, you know, he said they got money for war, but, but they don't, they can't feed the poor. And, and it's, I mean, that it's more true now than ever in, in a sense, in the sense that there's 40 billion for Ukraine, you know, to build back better Ukraine, but there, there's no 40, there's no 40 billion for build back U.S. There's no money for, for housing. You know, they, they recently told the, the public housing authority here, which is which is um, paid for by the federal government, that they didn't they couldn't find money in the budget for it. They couldn't find money. They claim that they can't find money for student debt relief. They can't find money for health care. Um, however, part of the part of the money that's going to Ukraine is for health care for the Ukrainians. You know, so it's it, it's absurd. And, and then my understanding is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's 30 billion that Biden asked for and got for for domestic law enforcement. So this is this is another insult, you know, to the people in this country. In 2020, uh, millions of people literally went into the streets, uh, demonstrating in the aftermath of the police execution of George Floyd and others, uh, such as Ahmed Aubrey, who was killed by uh, vigilantes in Georgia. Brianna Taylor, who was killed by the police in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and many others. And uh, the main slogan was defund the police or abolish the police. And uh, we heard Biden uh, at the State of the Union address earlier this year saying that he did not want to defund the police. He wanted to provide more money p to the police for training. The question is training to do what? Uh, to continue to kill people? to repress uh, mass demonstrations, and to drain municipal budgets. Right here in the city of Detroit, the police uh, get the largest proportion of the municipal budget in the city of Detroit. On top of that, uh, $50 million from the American Rescue Plan funds were given uh, to the police, and then another $2,000 bonus was given to each law enforcement officer in order to encourage them to stay on the job. Yet, as far as the municipal and retirees are concerned, civil servants, uh, poor people in general, there's been no direct payments from the municipal government, from the state of Michigan government, uh, to the majority of the people uh, in the state. Uh, but they do have money to fund the police, as the federal government has money to fund the police, and also to fund the military and industrial complex, and at the same time, uh, create the conditions for a possible third world war that could result in a nuclear conflict uh, in Europe. So this is a very dangerous situation that we're facing right now. I don't think 
uh, enough people in the United States realize the magnitude of the crisis uh, that we're facing right now, but they will get a clearer understanding as time goes forward. And of course, the Democratic Party, uh, which uh, controls the Senate, the House of Representatives, and the White House, uh, there are questions right now if they can continue to do that, particularly the Senate and the uh, House of Representatives, because this is a midterm election year. And with the economy uh, being the major concern for the overwhelming number of people inside the United States, and the war in Ukraine, even though they try to build sympathy for uh, the cause of the Ukrainian government uh, and placing Ukrainian refugees ahead of Haitian and Mexican refugees and African refugees, uh, this should make people extremely angry uh, at the uh, Biden administration. And if people do not go to the polls or if they switch their allegiance from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, uh, then, of course, uh, it would be a really deadlocked government if uh, more Republicans are elected to the Senate this year, and if the Democrats lose the House of Representatives or narrow their margin of, of majority in the House of Representatives, you will really have a deadlocked government that will not be able to pass almost any legislation, uh, particularly any legislation which they have not been able to pass anyway over the last year and a half uh, that will support uh, African Americans and working class people in general in the United States. Yeah, I mean, just a quick comment. Um, you talked about how Biden wanted to put more money into training law enforcement, um, but there was there was an article by Kenny Stancil on May 11, 2022, that was in Common Dream and also Black Agenda Report, wherein he outlined how there was a recent investigation that showed that um, many of the much of law enforcement in the U.S. Uh, are being trained by far right extremists. So, and, and considering what we saw yesterday in Buffalo, New York. I don't know that tra training certainly isn't the solution, um, and particularly if they're, if they're being trained by, by far-right extremists. <laughs> exactly. And uh, we know historically uh, that the police, a lot of their origins are centered around uh, the enslavement and the control of the enslavement of African people, uh, the forced removal and containment of the Native American people, and other oppressed peoples in the United States, the suppression of working class movements uh, in the United States. Uh, so they have a strong history of being a harbinger of uh, right-wing extremist groups. Uh, in the southern part of the United States and even in the northern part of the United States, uh, there are members of the Ku Klux Klan and other neo-Nazi organizations that are part of the police, uh, not, on a rank, not just on a rank and file level, but also on a leadership level and the ideology that they articulate is clearly an ultra-right-wing ideology, and they will continue to do so as long as they're funded by uh, the U.S. government uh, and also by local and state uh, governments as well. Well, um, thank you for saying that. And, and those are all the questions I have for you today. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we end? Well, I think it's very important uh, that people discuss these issues from a very objective standpoint. We're being flooded uh, with propaganda on a daily basis to encourage people uh, to support the NATO position in Ukraine. And of course, this has confused so many people, even peace activists and leftists in the United States. Uh, so 
we have to discuss these issues more. Uh, people have to understand that this war is not going to benefit anyone except the Pentagon and the capitalist corporations uh, that develop uh, the equipment and the, military, and the military arms that are sent into the theaters of war. It's going to fuel the inflationary spiral that we see now in the United States and Europe and throughout the capitalist world. And it's also going to create more and more death and destruction in Europe and other geopolitical regions around the world. And it's not just Russia that the United States is threatened by. It's also the People's Republic of China, the Islamic Republic of Iran, and other countries uh, that have taken positions against the hegemony of U.S. foreign policy around the world. So this is a major issue uh, that has both foreign policy as well as domestic policy implications, and people have to stand strong against the war, stand strong against the military budget, against NATO, and call for its outright defeat in Ukraine, uh, because the strength of NATO at this point uh, in history will be detrimental to the overwhelming majority of people throughout the world. Yes, and thank you for saying that, because it is, it is so hard to get objective information, as you stated, these days. I mean, they, the U.S. Or and, the, and the corporate uh, corporations have, have done, a, you, know, a, 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 you know, a really powerful job of blocking many media outlets. Yeah, I mean, they've, uh, you know, shut down RT America. Uh, there's no uh, objective news reporting or news analysis is all one-sided and that one side uh, is calling for more arms and uh, more mercenaries uh, to uh, Ukraine uh, to fight against the Russian Federation and also calls for the expansion of NATO ostensibly to secure a world peace but it's doing just the opposite. Yeah and, and Sputnik News is, as well which is you know, Sputnik Radio which as two, you know, black left-run um, uh, programs, you know, American black left-run. So it's not even like these are journalists that are reporting out of Moscow. These are journalists yeah. that are reporting out of D.C. Um, yeah. and, and we're talking about four top-notch, uh, you know, left, black left radical American uh, journalists that, that are, are being essentially it's very difficult to find anything out of Sputnik or RT. Um, yeah. So that, that's why we have to look for your work on the Pan-African Newswire. We have to look at Black Agenda Report and, and the few other sources there are to find objective news as you outline. Exactly. So thank you um, for coming on the show um, and, and helping add to some of the objective conversation. Um, and, and I really appreciate it and hope to have you back soon. And thank you for continuing to cover these issues. It's very, very important at this time period. Welcome back. And uh, that was um, Activist News Network uh, out of uh, New York City uh, featuring Ray Napoli uh, as the host and guest, uh, yours truly, Abayomi Azikawe, uh, editor of the Pan-African Newswire and host of the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, discussing a myriad of issues centering around the role of imperialism and its organs, uh, such as uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. 
And uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segments uh, for this program. Cause you're a goddamn king. 
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Hugh Mandel, and uh, we're here at the uh, Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, this is the early morning hours of uh, Monday, uh, May 16th, uh, 2022, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, Right now, we want to move into the report from the world today. Dealing with the uh, ASEAN, the Asian uh, Economic and Cooperation Organization, and the role of the United States in attempting to undermine the People's Republic of China within the ASEAN uh, region. Let's listen to this report from the world today. Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Joe Biden is hosting an ASEAN summit at the White House in Washington. Finland has announced a bid to join NATO. Sri Lankan president promises changes as the country plunges further into chaos. U.S. inflation continues to stay at a 40-year high. And U.S. COVID death has officially passed 1 million mark. Hello, you're listening to World Today, a news program from a different perspective. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Our top story. U.S. President Joe Biden is hosting Southeast Asian leaders in Washington, D.C., 
issues including the post-COVID-19 economic revival, climate change, and the political situation in Myanmar will be on the table at the two-day meeting starting on Thursday. The White House says the commitment will demonstrate the enduring commitment of the United States towards ASEAN. The Philippines and Myanmar, though, will not be represented at this meeting. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Li Pei Mei, Assistant Professor of Political Science with the International Islamic University, Malaysia. Good evening. Hello. A very good evening to you. Thank you very much for joining our show. So why do you think Mr. Biden is hosting this particular meeting at a time when the the ongoing war in Ukraine seems to be Washington's top, you know, foreign policy priority? Um, I think, well, the Ukraine war might be the pressing issue that the Biden administration actually needs to deal with. But personally, I think Washington's long-term interest mm-hmm. is actually to maintain a free and open Indo-Pacific. Hence, I think the U.S. needs to pursue deeper engagement with Southeast Asia. And in fact, uh, I think this is the best time to engage Southeast Asia countries because with the Ukraine war, the U.S. can easily make a comparison between what is happening in Ukraine with what could potentially happen in the Southeast Asia country uh, with a growing China. Mm. So I guess there is one question because you are... Uh, exactly situated in a country that belongs to ASEAN in Malaysia. So from ASEAN's perspective, uh, is there a a, a sort of realistic need for the United Mm -hmm. States to increase or enlarge its presence in the region, in Southeast Asia? Yeah, from Southeast Asia perspective, um, I think it depends on what kind of presence we're talking about. Mm. Uh, if it's more about military presence, I, I don't think it is helpful at all because it will only escalate the tensions in the region, um, especially if now a sensitive time, right, with the war happening in Ukraine. If the United States actually decided to increase its military presence in Southeast Asia, um, I think it might send a wrong warning to the, a wrong signal to the people in Southeast Asia. But, if today we're talking about economic presence, mm-hmm. um, I believe many, um, I mean, ASEAN members will be very happy and they will welcome the U.S. firms to actually invest in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. But in terms of maintaining peace and security, uh, I don't think ASEAN will uh, be happy to have the external party to play a role. Mm, yeah, indeed. There should be some sort of distinction to be you know, drawer between security affairs and economic affairs. So Biden's Indo-Pacific mm-hmm. strategy, which we know was released earlier this year back in February, says Washington will explore more opportunities for the Quad, namely India, United States, Australia, mm-hmm. Japan, to work with ASEAN nations. Do you think this particular idea will resonate with ASEAN? Mm-hmm. I think it will definitely be in the interest of the United States to gain support from as many countries as possible to maintain its position as a global leader. Therefore, by proposing cooperation between Quad and ASEAN could help to draw ASEAN closer to the United States. Mm. Uh, however, I'm actually quite skeptical that ASEAN members would be willing to work with Quad 
especially if it is to contain China. As we know, the main goal of Quad actually now is to contain the rise of China. Um, this is because if we look at China's growth, ASEAN has actually benefited from it. And looking at how interdependent ASEAN economies and Chinese economies are, um, I think um, ASEAN would not uh, want to work closely with Quad to contain China. Uh, they don't want to be seen as part of the forces that try to contain China. But of course, if we're talking about cooperation in non-security matters like uh, COVID-19, uh, I believe that's possible. Okay. So I guess that's the observation shared by many other observers uh, over there in Southeast Asian countries. Now, if yeah, like you said, Dr. Lee, like ASEAN countries look forward to more economic engagement on uh, on the part of the United States in this region. So here's one specific issue we can talk about. Basically, during the summit, uh, the Washington or President Biden himself um, is largely expected to discuss this idea regarding Indo-Pacific economic framework uh, with ASEAN leaders. We know this uh, this particular framework was uh, unveiled by Biden last year, uh, and some mm-hmm. of the uh, content within this framework, uh, at least uh, at this point, does not seem to be mm-hmm. very clear. But do you think this mm-hmm. is going to impress ASEAN if President Biden talk about this during this meeting? Yeah, I think in, indeed you have highlighted how now not many details have actually been revealed about this uh, new economic framework that's led by the United States. But one thing we can be sure of, it's, only, it's not going to be inclusive. It's only to include like-minded partners. Um, and because there aren't many details that have been revealed about this uh, Indo-Pacific economic framework, we can't be sure how impressive this framework will be and what this framework can offer to ASEAN. But if today we say if this framework is going to contribute to the development of ASEAN members, uh, I believe that we would be happy to know more about it. Because as we have seen how COVID-19 uh, and its measures has badly hit ASEAN economy. So if this U.S.-led economic framework could help them to restore their economy, uh, I think it's, uh, it's very likely that ASEAN consider being part of it. Mm. Uh, however, there's mm-hmm. one thing we need to be cautious about, um, uh, about whether the U.S. can be truly committed to this new economic framework. Because we've seen in the past, you know, how the M- Obama administration yes. came up with this Trans-Pacific Partnership, yes. TPP. Yes. But later, under Trump, they decided to actually withdraw from it. So I can only say, um, ASEAN members, they need to consider not only what the U.S. can offer, but whether the U.S. is able to keep its commitment. Mm, a lack of continuity uh, indeed seems to be a problem on the part of Washington, especially if we consider its domestic politics. So, oh, by the way, how would exactly. you describe this relationship between Indo-Pacific Economic Framework and RCEP, which we know have officially has officially come into force in January? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, one of the differences would be, well, I think this Indo, uh, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework um, the high labor standards, environmental standards will maybe uh, make 
ASEAN countries to actually think twice to participate because uh, that standards are based on Western standards. Yeah, and this is not something that developing countries can actually adhere to. But on the other hand, I think RCEP, uh, especially Malaysia, uh, we are we are considered one of the biggest beneficiaries from RCEP, um, and uh, it's more flexible in the sense in terms of its labor practices uh, and regulations. Hmm. So, Doctor Lee, we still have about ninety seconds before we need to wrap up our、mm-hmm. interview with you tonight. So, how should China respond to growing U.S. effort to increase the U.S. engagement with Southeast Asia? I think actually China has a strong presence in this region. Yeah,、mm-hmm. it's the largest trading partner for ASEAN, and there are many ongoing BRI projects in the region. For example, in Malaysia, we have、uh, East Coast Rail Link,、uh, where uh, China has um, um, you know、um, borrowed money. For Malaysia to construct our railway,、um, therefore, in my opinion, ASEAN members may be keener to actually maintain the long-established relationship with China.、Uh, so, what I think that China can do is to deepen the existing cooperation with these countries and also expand cooperation in new areas.、Mm. For example, last year, Malaysia concluded new areas of cooperation with China. For example, in the Europe. Digital economy, cyber、mm-hmm. security, yes, vaccine research, yeah, and many others, right?、Uh, mm-hmm. But I think one of the new areas that caught my attention is cultural diplomacy.、Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is a new area which、uh, ASEAN members and China can work together because through cultural diplomacy, ASEAN and China could actually foster mutual understanding and respect for each other. And we surely build a stronger and more lasting relationship between them.、Mm, especially against the backdrop that there is a lot of historical and cultural or people-to-people link between China and ASEAN, cultural diplomacy really was. I'm very sure it will work. But thank you very much for for your analysis. That was Dr. Li Pei Mei, assistant professor of political science with the International Islamic University, Malaysia. You are listening to World. Welcome back, and that was a report on、uh, the role of the United States in undermining unity、uh, in Asia. And、uh, this is the Pan African Journal special worldwide、uh, radio broadcast for the early morning hours of、uh, Monday, May sixteenth, twenty twenty-two. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and、uh, this coming Thursday will represent. The 97th、uh, birthday of、uh, Malcolm X,、uh, El Hajj Malik Shabazz, and、uh, we wanted to, of course,、uh, bring you、uh, some of the discussions that Malcolm X was involved in in 1960、uh, with、uh, African American novelist, essayist, and public intellectual、uh, James Baldwin. This was、uh, taken from a radio broadcast over WBIA in New York City.、Uh, let's listen in. First, I would like to say that I'm speaking、uh, not for myself, but as a follower and helper and representative of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, who is the spiritual head of the fastest-growing group, religious group, of black people here in the Western Hemisphere. When we give our views, we don't give them as a civic group, we don't give them as a political group, but we give them primarily 
as a religious group. And any solution that we support, we absolutely uh, feel that it's a religious solution rather than a political solution. One of the one of the reasons that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, uh, in teaching us here in America, uh, is giving us a solution that differs drastically from the sit-in movement. He's trying to make us men. Now, the the very fact that you find students all over the world today are standing up for their rights and fighting for their rights. But here in America, the so-called Negro students have allowed themselves to be maneuvered under a tag uh, of sit-in. It actually, I guess it describes, it. the, the name describes its nature. It's a passive thing. And uh, if their goal is uh, integration, it's not a worthwhile one. But if their goal is freedom, justice, and equality, then that's a worthwhile goal. If integration is going to give the black people in America complete freedom, complete justice, and complete equality, then it's a worthwhile goal. The holding this integration uh, uh, bottle, dangling it in front of the Negroes in America today, has actually uh, disabled them, or it has uh, nullified their ability to stand up and fight like a man for something that is theirs by right, rather than to just sit around and beg and wait for the white man to make up his mind that they're worthy to have this type thing. I think that this is, in my opinion, why we disagree with the uh, sit-in movement. If uh, they are willing to wait for another hundred years for the white man to change his mind, to accept them as a human being, then they're wrong. Uh, but if they're willing to lay down their life tonight or in the morning, in order that we can have what is ours by right tonight or in the morning, then it's a good movement. But as long as they're willing to wait for the white man to make up his mind that they are qualified to be respected as human beings, then I'm afraid that all of their uh, waiting and their planning is for naught. Uh, as, as Thurgood Marshall said on New Year's Eve, uh, the, the Supreme Court brought about the desegregation decision, I think, uh, six or seven years ago, and there is only 6% desegregation in America right now. We don't call... Uh, to students, black students going to the University of Georgia integration, or do we cause, call uh, four children, black children going to school in New Orleans integration, nor do we call a handful of black students going to school in Little Rock integration. If every black man in the state of Arkansas can't go to any school he wants, that's not integration. And if every black child in the state of Louisiana cannot go to any school that they are qualified for in the morning, then that's not integration. And likewise with Georgia and any other state in America. It's no integration with us until the entire thing is given, is laid on the table, not a hundred years from now, but in the morning. And at the rate that the NAACP, CORE, and uh, uh, the Urban League is uh, willing to accept the, the change of attitude in the white man's mind, we who are Muslims feel we'll be sitting around here in America for another thousand years uh, not waiting for civil rights or something like that, but even waiting to be uh, granted the rights of a human being. I have a feeling that um, a great many words have been floating around, have been floating around this table, which need to be um, redefined. And that, by the way, is the problem I think which faces facing this entire country. Now, I don't agree with Mr. X about the student movement, and I do know something about the war, the incipient war between the students and some of the leaders. I know, I know the gap, the enormous gap between the NAACP and the children in the South. I don't agree that the sit-in 
No, I don't agree that it is necessarily passive. I think it demands a tremendous amount of power in one's, in one's personal life and, and, and in terms of political or polemical activity. Sometimes to, to, to sit down and do nothing or seem to do nothing. But finally, when the, when the civil movement started, or when a great many things started in, this, in, the, in the Western world, it was not, I don't think, I think it had a great deal less to do with equality than it had to do with power. And I do think we have to talk about, we have to decide what we want, you know. Now, what has happened in the world in relation to black people is not that white people have suddenly changed or become more, uh, more conscious of, of a black man's humanity. It is, what has happened is very simple. This is the white power has been broken. And, and this means, among other things, that it is no longer possible for an Englishman to describe an African and make the African believe it. It is no longer possible for a white man in this country to tell a Negro who he is and make the Negro believe this. The controlling image is absolutely gone. Now, it seems to me the responsibility which faces us then, the question which faces us, which faces me in any case, is since there is a distinction between power and equality, there is a distinction between power and freedom. And I know that in terms, for example, of, of Africa, that an African nation cannot expect to be respected unless it is free. I know that it, unless, it is, unless it has its political destiny in its own hands, which is what we mean by power, there is no hope that the English will deal with an African nation on, they will deal with an African nation as a, sub, as a subjugated nation as long as it is in fact subjugated. That is not quite the same situation that we face here in America as American Negroes. I can see that I might very well, for one reason or another, leave this country tomorrow and never come back. But this will not make me, this will not cease, I will not cease to be an American Negro for this reason. And the history of our, our history in this country is something that I think we have to face, especially since we're demanding that white people face it. And whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not, this issue about integration is a, is a false issue because we have been integrated here ever since we got here. I am no longer a pure African. There are no pure Africans in this country. The history which has produced us is something which in any case we're going to have to deal with one of these days. Now, I think it is a mistake to pretend this issue did not happen. What we're arguing about, I think, one of the things in any case I think I would be arguing about is the effect of this on the Negro world and the great divisions in it. So that, so that it does, in fact, range from people who imagine they are white, you know, who never talk to Negroes, to people who imagine that if they can make a buck, they will somehow beat the system, to homeless and, and demoralized black boys and girls who, have nowhere to, who don't know where to go. The issue, it seems to me, the reason that the city movement is important, the reason this whole ferment is of such importance, is not that I want anybody's cup of coffee, or even to go, particularly to anybody's school, it is because the country cannot afford, the country cannot afford to have, as it has at this moment, millions of black boys and girls in various ghettos all over the country, either perishing literally, or perishing, I must say, finally with bitter, the kind of demoral, demoralization and bitterness and hatred, which can, after all, blow this country wide apart. The importance, in my mind, of the Muslim movement, in conclusion, is that, it is the first time, I think, in the history of this country that uh, a Negro audience, a, a, a Negro laborer, a Negro, a Negro schoolboy has heard his own condition described and without anybody trying to flinch from it. It is very different hearing a speech by Roy Wilkins in which, you know, um, one is told in one way or another that tomorrow will be better. Uh, and I think this has a tremendous effect. This is the reason I think the Muslim speaker has so much power over his audience. It comes out of a failure in the Republic 
this country has lied about the Negro situation for 100 years. And now what has happened is the lies are no longer viable, can no longer be, can, can no longer be accepted even when they can told. And the country has waited so long and it does not know how to handle this and has created a moral vacuum. There's a moral vacuum in the, in the Negro ghettos and the same way there's a moral vacuum in New Orleans which is filled with desperate people. Now, I don't think that we can afford this. It seems to me, and now I speak for myself, my call with the official Negro leadership, and my call with um, those such Negroes as imagine they are um, integrated or imagine they have somehow escaped Negro condition, is that they are not willing to do what I think is absolutely essential when it's got to re-examine the basis, the standards of this country, which not only afflict black people, they afflict the entire country. No one in this country, as far as I can see, really knows any longer what it means to be, to be an American. He, he does not know what he means by freedom. He does not know what he means by equality. We live in the most abysmal ignorance of not only the condition of 20 million Negroes in our midst, but the, the whole nature of the life being lived in the rest of the world. And I think that the American, the American right now, the Republic, is paying and beginning to pay for his treatment as a Negro in terms of what he does not know about the rest of the world. You cannot live, it seems to me, in a, you cannot live 30 years, I'd say, with something in your closet which you know is there and pretend it is not there without something terrible happening to you. By and by, what, you can, what I cannot say, if I know that any one of you, you know, has um, murdered your brother, your mother, and the corpse is in this room and under the table, and I know it, and you know it, and you know I know it. And we cannot talk about it. It takes no time at all before we cannot talk about anything. Before absolute silence descends. And that kind of silence is descended on this country. I think that this country has become incon almost inconceivably radical. It has really got to do something that's not done before. And this involves the humanity of everybody in it. And the key to this is in the Negro. If one can face that, one can face anything. But that has not been faced. I think this is the reason for the confusion and the ferment and the great, great danger. Again, let me say this, and I will stop. I'm not religious. Um, and therefore, since I'm not religious, all theologies, uh, for me, are suspect. All theologies have a certain use. But um, I never, for example, believed in the, image, the myth of the virgin birth. I never quite understood why it was necessary to propagate such a peculiar notion. Therefore, you know, as theologies go, it seems to me the Muslim theology is just as good as any. We're going to quarrel with it there. I can't, anyway. But I personally, I personally reject that theology as I reject all others. And I don't think that we need it. Now, this is a great, this is a gamble. This is a very reckless thing to say. And perhaps, you know, I'm, perhaps it's very mystical. I know the kind of world I would like to see. I would like to think of myself as not needing to be um, um, supported by a myth. I would like to think of myself as being able to face whatever it is I have to face as me, dealing with what I have and what, and what there is, without having my identity dependent on something which finally has to be believed, which cannot be tested. This is why one is converted to a religion, you know. I think that it, there's something very dangerous in it. What I would like to see, and maybe we'll never live to see it, is a world in which these things are not necessary. 
which I will not need to invent in effect, a heritage and a history, but I can deal with the one I have, and will not need, in order, to, in order to deal with the rest of the world, will not need to feel superior to them, but simply, simply be a part of them. And it seems to me this may happen. Well, I love to see a world in which there are no blacks, there are no whites, where it does not matter. Because as long as it does matter, as long as it does matter, and it doesn't matter who is wearing the shoe, the confusion will be great and the bloodshed will be great. Well, I, uh, as a black man, and proud of being a black man, I, I can't conceive of myself as having any desire whatsoever to lose my identity. I wouldn't want to live in a world uh, where none of my kind existed. I, and I do think that the Negro, Americans, American so-called Negro, is the only person on earth who would be willing to lose his identity in a, what you might call a, a new product. Uh, this, I heard one fellow say one day that, that there eventually intermarriage and intermixing would take place on such a vast scale that it would produce a chocolate-colored race. And, I, and Martin Luther King was in a uh, discussion, televised discussion, with a white uh, newspaper man. I saw it on the television a couple months ago. And this white newspaper man put this to him. Uh, he said, he pointed out that he's proud of his white race. He's proud of what he is. He's proud of the, his racial characteristics uh, to the extent where he has no desire to lose it by mixing with any other race. And the thing that he said he couldn't understand was why the so-called Negroes don't have the same uh, racial pride that whites have in trying to retain their characteristics. And Martin Luther King never answered him, although he should have answered him. Uh, I think that it is uh, that it's disastrous for the black people in America to reach the point where they, their race pride, racial pride uh, disappears and they don't, want, they don't care whether their blood is mixed up with someone else's. I think that also one of the things that brings this about, as the Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us, the very fact that you have to refer to the black man in America as a Negro shows you that right there something is wrong. And African doesn't accept this term Negro. And uh, you find they teach us in the educational system of this country that Negro is a Spanish word that's supposed to mean black. Uh, yet, when you find the uh, black people who live in Spanish-speaking countries of South and Central America, they don't accept the word Negro to identify themselves. Uh, no one allows himself to be classified with, <coughs> under the word Negro but the black man here in America who is a descendant of the slaves. And very seldom is it ever applied to anybody but the black man in here, here in America who is the descendant of the slaves. When you ask a man his identity, he should use a a word that connects him with a, with a culture. If you ask him his nationality, it should connect him with, with a nation. Like if I ask a man his nationality and he says German, that connects him with Germany. Or if he says, uh, even if he says German-American, it still connects him with uh, having originated. His family, his history uh, has originated in Germany. If he says he's French-American, it connects him uh, with France. But when you ask the black man in America, and he tells you Negro, he doesn't put any other he doesn't he doesn't put in any any other country a front in in, uh, in front he puts American Negro or he'll just say Negro. This doesn't identify him. And usually, when you find a man who calls himself a Negro, he can't tell you what language that he spoke before he came to this country. It's of no consequence, no interest. He believes that 
prior to coming here, he was a savage in the jungle, and therefore he had no language, and this justifies his uh, lack of knowledge concerning that mother tongue today. And the history, as uh, Mr. Baldwin pointed out, of the white man here in America and the black man here in America points up the fact that the Negro, or the man here who calls himself a Negro, is just an ex-slave. If he is an ex-slave, I'd rather say he's still a slave. But he's wearing his slave master's name, the name that was given to him during slavery. He's speaking the language of the man who made him a slave because he has no knowledge of his own tongue. He only knows the history, his own history, as taught to him by his former slave master, who purposely hid from him his, uh, his own history to make him think that he was an inferior being before being brought here. And uh, Mr. Muhammad teaches us that until the black man here in America is uh, connected or reestablished uh, or given, an, given some knowledge of his existence prior to coming here to America, his own uh, appraisal of himself will be so low that he'll actually think that the white man is doing him a favor to let him be here in America no matter what his status is. And he'll, he also, and this is one of the reasons today why he fights so hard, some of them, to sit down next to the white man. They actually think that the white man is the personification of perfection, and whenever they're allowed to go live in his neighborhood or sit in his restaurant or uh, uh, mingle or socialize with him, that they have attained, that they have made progress. But uh, when they go back and study the history of their own people and the accomplishments of their own people, the civilizations and cultures, black civilizations and black cultures that existed in Africa at a time when the whites in Europe were living a cave-like uh, 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 existence, then immediately their appraisal of, their self, of themselves uh, begins to uh, go higher. And they don't think that to beg uh, 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 somebody to uh, mingle with them in this country is any kind of progress whatsoever. And I would like to say one more thing, too, on that nonviolent thing, that the black man in America is the only one who is encouraged to be nonviolent, or the black man in Africa, or the black man in Asia. Uh, never do you find white people encouraging other whites to be nonviolent. Uh, whites uh, idolize fighters. They idolize the Hungarian freedom fighters who came to this country and are right now can work on jobs that the sit-in students can't get, can live in neighborhoods that the sit-in students can't live in, and can go into public places that the students sit in can't go because they are fighters. Everyone loves a fighter. They respect the fighter. And, but at the same time that they admire these fighters, they encourage the so-called Negro in America to get his uh, uh, desires fulfilled with a sit-in stroke or a passive approach or a love-your-enemy uh, approach or pray for those who despitefully use you. This is insane. And we feel as Muslims, until we see white people practicing this nonviolence, take Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese pa uh, attacked Pearl Harbor, the American white man didn't say, pray for the Japanese and uh, let them now bomb Manhattan or uh, Staten Island. No, they said, praise the Lord, but pass the ammunition. But, uh, and if anybody comes along, like Mr. Muhammad, and begins to point out uncompromisingly in blunt terms that don't need diplomatic language that can be misinterpreted, and he begins to point out these atrocities and crimes that have been committed against black people here in America today. The white man can never deny the fact that he's guilty, but he'll always say, well, forget the past and let's look forward. But uh, uh, the only people who are told to forget the injustices that have been done to them are the black people. 
But when it comes to whites, right today, you can turn on any radio, turn on any television, read any newspaper, and the uh, Jews have magnified to the world the crimes that were committed against them 20 years ago or so by Eichmann, uh, and they keep you sitting on the edge of your seat wanting to strangle Eichmann. It's almost like a hate Germany uh, campaign. But yet the Jews are never accused of teaching hate because they remind, of the world, remind the world of the crimes that were committed against them. But when the black man here in America begins to stand up and speak about the crimes that are committed against him throughout America every day, no let up, just different forms, immediately a black man who dwells on that is considered a racist, considered an extremist, or considered someone who is advocating a doctrine that will bring about violence and bring about a deterioration in the so-called good relations that are supposed to be developing between black and white in this country. So we just can't go along with any of that. And I think that this is the thing that the white people of America should realize, that Mr. Muhammad's teaching, and it's spreading, so you have to deal with it, Mr. Muhammad's teaching doesn't teach the black man to wait for the white man to change his mind. Mr. Muhammad's teaching is changing the, the black man's appraisal of himself. And as soon as the black man uh, undergoes a reappraisal of himself and realizes that he's a man too, he says to himself, why should he wait for the Supreme Court? to give him what a white man has when he's born? Why should he wait for the Congress or the Senate or the President to tell him that he should have this when if he's a man the same as that man is a man, he doesn't need any President, he doesn't need any Congress, he doesn't need any Supreme Court, he doesn't need anybody but himself to bring about that which is his if he is a man. I think we, I think in the first place, there's some um, disagreement between Mr. Mr. Malcolm X and myself as to what this heritage is. Welcome back and uh, that was uh, Malcolm X and James Baldwin in a debate, a discussion from 1960 in New York City. And uh, we're going to be uh, closing out our program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast and uh, for today, uh, which has been uh, Sunday, May 15th, and early morning hours of Monday, uh, May 16th. And uh, if you'd like to have access uh, to our program, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll be closing out uh, with the music of John Coltrane uh, from the album entitled Dial Africa. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 